Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is often Oscar season. I'm Mike. Most of the time, I'm Brian. Most of the time in this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from the Oscar pedestal. Today, though, we continue our mini-series abroad, traveling to Japan to catch up with another blind spot from the BFI's greatest films of all time poll. Today's movie, Tokyo Story. It's director, Yasuhiro Ozu. So, this movie is so highly regarded it's kind of like a little intimidating to 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 tackle it. we're not going to do it justice now on the critics poll so the reason we're doing this is that the sight and sound we're, we're looking at five movies that the sight and sound had in their um every 10 year poll what is that decennial poll i don't know decennial poll <laughs> it's above my pay grade um, <laughs> um but this was this has been very high for so long in 1992 it was third in the critics poll then it was fifth no two and then it was third again in 2012 so the critics have put it very high for a long time in 2022 it was ranked fourth again the directors actually put it at number 1 in 2012 as the best wow. movie based on the greatest movie according to directors in this poll um Roger Ebert put it in his top like however many short shortlist Scorsese put it on his shortlist Rotten Tomatoes, of course, gives it a solid 100.00%. Not one detractor. Not one person, not one critic has ever given it a one and a half stars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although I did like this. I looked at some of the IMDb user reviews. Okay. <laughs> Those are always worthwhile. This is a, Oh, yeah. You know you're getting some high quality uh, criticism here. But here's the, t I, I just, I'm just going to read the title. Okay. From the... If it's boring, it must be a masterpiece. School of filmmaking. <laughs> I thought you. I thought you'd sympathize with that title. Yeah, <laughs> after after Jean Dielman last week, um, I or, think we're going to talk more about that because I pulled another quote from okay. the Rotten Tomatoes mm. audience because I think that we it's love the audience with yeah. this kind of thing. It, exactly, you're talking about a movie that's 70 years old, that's black mm -hmm. and white in subtitles. These are not accessible movies. By the, the traditional standards. Exactly. So I think it's worth kind of sometimes parsing out mm -hmm. um, who a movie is for. It's almost like, if you remember in one of our, in our first episode, I think it was, what are your favorite Best Picture nominations, you know, mm -hmm. before 1999? Mm -hmm. And I put as my number one movie, Casablanca. And partly it's like, it's, I mean, one of the reasons I love it so much is because of the lore around it and because of like, you know, every shot is famous practically throughout the movie. Yeah. And sometimes that's almost like a little distracting or not yeah. good, but in a way I kind of like that about Casablanca and it kind of helps, you know, enlarge the movie. And for me, this one is one that most people that I've ever met probably have never seen. I had never even, maybe never even heard of before. I've probably seen on list, but never registered. Yeah. So anyway, in the show today, we'll do some questions. Um, actually, I don't really have any trivia. And then <laughs> we will... Um, introduce the next movie in our show. So a few questions. <laughs> a jam-packed episode. <laughs> All right, so let's start with Roger Ebert since you you mentioned him. Yeah. Um, in his He's quote, a big fan. He is. He says, uh, Tokyo Story moves quite slowly by our Western standards and requires more patience at first than some moviegoers may be willing to supply. Its effect is cumulative, cumulative however. The pace comes to seem perfectly suited to the material. And there are scenes that will be hard to forget. So does that quote summarize the experience that you had with this film? 
kind of slow at first. Totally. Okay, cool. In fact, the first hour, because I watched it in a couple installments, as I am wont to do, <laughs> the first half of the movie, I was like, oh no. The whole half. We have made a, a horrible mistake. We just did John Dealman, mm-hmm. which was pretty long and kind of tough. And I, I liked it in the end. Yeah. I would give it a thumbs up. I'm glad I watched it. But it was like two hours, 40 minutes where that one got good. <laughs> right? I don't know about that. It was thought provoking in a way that this one for the first hour was not thought provoking to me. Like I loved the look of it so much. Some of those shots, it's like the cinematography is really interesting. Um, it's very low to the ground. You know, it's very static camera. They do, there's like the establishing shot that you normally, you know, get in movies like, and this is the house. This is the outside of the home alone house. Now we're going to go inside the home alone house. It doesn't, you know, you have to have that. Well, they don't really do a lot of that kind of stuff here. It's just like, it might be like a construction scene. And then all of a sudden you're back in the house. And maybe because people are, you know, in Japan, that was like obvious enough. But for me, it it, it wasn't. So it was a mm. little bit disorienting, but all those transitional shots were amazing. Like the, the, the composition and the set making is so great um, throughout and the black and white, the use of black and white is stupendous. Um, but nothing happens in the first hour to the point where I'm like, this movie is a hundred percent boring small talk for like an hour. And I thought that maybe mm. it was just, I wasn't ever going to get it. Then the second half, the second half of the movie, I was it was like a, a, a switch flip for me. And I really, really enjoyed the rest of the movie. And it was very moving, you know, at the end. Um, and so I think that Ebert's kind of calculation or his description is, is right on for me. What about you? Yeah, it's definitely a grower. I don't think for the first half or the first hour that I that I felt the same that like, yeah. oh, man, this is going to be a slog. But I definitely <laughs> did feel at the beginning that. After Jean Dielman, now it's, <laughs> I kind of want a little bit more action, you know? Um, but the small talk does take up a lot of oh, the beginning. Man. And it's pointed small talk. Like, you, yeah. this is a family who hadn't seen each other in years. Mm-hmm. And they never really explain why. It's just that yeah. the kids live in Tokyo and the parents are out in the country. And it's like, well, it's too far away, even though there's a train that connects them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they do see each other, you're expecting some kind of warmth yep. and that does not happen. But the more that we go on, I think that, you know, you find a little bit more meaning in yeah. that. But Jean Dielman, I think that we need to kind of go back to a little bit and talk about the, 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 the slowness slow of cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Because he says that this could be slow for our Western standards. Obviously that was <laughs> as well. And I think they do the slowness in, in different ways. You know, I think that, Ackerman for John Dealman. I think that in a way they're almost punishing us with yeah. the slowness, yeah. with with the inaction, because they want us to project our own emotions and ideas onto it, see these things differently over time, and then it kind of becomes something else, and that something else is really happening mostly in our head instead of on the screen. Mm-hmm. I think with this, um, even when things are not happening, we're kind of observing. The word that Ebert uses is objectively, that Mm -hmm. we're observing these scenes objectively, which I think is is interesting because it kind of forces us to make our own assumptions about these characters, who's right, who's wrong. Even though the kids seem to be acting selfishly, it's also kind of making excuses for them at the same time. And there's an ongoing dialogue about that in the movie. How you you judge the adult children. So it's this couple... 
We didn't we didn't do a trailer or anything. Yeah, didn't yeah. even bother looking one up because it probably wouldn't have worked out <laughs> yeah, too well. It wouldn't have been great. But but basically, it's about this older couple that go to visit their children and grandchildren in the city, and they just it's not a very good reception. And over time, they kind of are more and more ignored, mm-hmm. and um, it and comes to a point where they even say. Well, let, let's send out, let's send the parents out to a resort for a little while. And they go out to the resort. They don't really have that great of a time. They come back early. And then the, the, the one, the daughter-in-law is like, or the, is it the daughter? I think it's the daughter um, is saying, oh, why are you back so early? We didn't really want you back so early. So then they, yeah. the, the father goes out and has like a long drinking binge with, with buddies, um, which is kind of like this, that that's where it turned for me. It got, it got like, that was a pretty depressing scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they're just drinking themselves silly and they're just complaining about how their, their children are such a disappointment to them. Mm-hmm. And that really introduced a lot of the themes, I think even more. Yeah. And that actually led me to a question that I was wondering, um, you know, they, they're, they're basically like kind of ashamed of how their children are turning out. And I just wonder how you feel that, you know, know knowing that your parents are so disappointed in you. <laughs> I've been dealing with it for a long time, Brian. At this point in life, you know, you accept it, you internalize it, and you bury it under just a mountain of other things. Yeah, yeah. I, well, it, the, as it as it goes on, you know, they they still they keep talking about this, and at the end, there's another scene where the daughter-in-law, who has been the nicest one of all, even though yep. she's not blood related. She has this, she's kind of defending them to the youngest daughter. And yep. it's, it's kind of hard to keep it all straight. You know, I, I'm, I know that this is not the best explanation, but she's defending them and kind of saying that um, they seem selfish, but as you get older and you drift apart and it's just, she's kind of saying it's kind of the natural way of things that your parents become less, you know, the center of your life and, and whatever. And even though you know that there's some truth to what she's saying, it's still, there's this kind of pang of like, it's it's too bad that that happens in life, and they even say like, "Isn't life disappointing?" Mm-hmm. And they and the the daughter in law says, "Yes, it is," and it ends with the mother dying and the father being all alone, and it's 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 a really sad, you know, kind of ending. Um, but so that's kind of what the movie's about. I would say that even though that doesn't sound like the most exciting movie, I would totally recommend this movie if you haven't seen it. It's on yeah. HBO Max. You can stream it for you can stream it there if you want to go get a subscription or get a trial or whatever. Um, and it certainly has captured. You know, critics certainly are all all on board with this. It grow. It kind of the emotion of it creeps up. Yeah. on Yeah. I think partly because it's kind of an exercise in the passage of time. It's sort of yes. like the slow, like we talked about the slow cinema with Jean Dielman. Mm-hmm. It kind of afterward, I was thinking, you know, you you just do need a certain amount of time to start caring about a character. Like no matter what is happening, yeah, you have to be, you just have to sit with them for a while. And even though they're saying pretty sometimes at the beginning, like, oh, welcome, you know. Sit, sit down here. Just chit chat. Would you like some tea? Would mm-hmm. you, you know, whatever they said. Um, none of that seems interesting, but you sort of start to see them as a real person just because you're spending a certain amount of time with them. Yeah. And this movie does deal with that quite a bit, you know, um, especially with the watch at the end. Um, there's a, a watch given as a gift. And, and after that happened, right after this gift of a watch, there it cuts to, a train 
you know, zooming past and whether this is the director Ozu's like full intention or I'm bringing this partly to it, I don't know if it really matters that much, but because of all this effect on time, I just kind of thought, you know, it's right after they're saying, well, isn't life disappointing? You know, there's death, there's marriage discussion, there's all these different things and generational overturning over and everything. And this train coming by, it just felt like this perfect metaphor mm-hmm. for like the rushing forward, forward of time. Like all we can do is just kind of get on the train and do our best and enjoy what we can in, in life. Yeah. And, but there's nothing that's going to stop this train. And it feels so imposing the way it shot is down low. The train is like filling the entire frame and just cruising off. And it's so loud and kind of, you know, almost frightening this train right in front of your face. But, um, I just, I don't know, the more I, the more I saw how everything was put together, I was just giving like any, I was giving all the credit to the director by the end and saying like, you know, all this is so carefully planned out and, and, and well done. Well, that's why the small talk is so important, because you realize that the, the adult children and the parents don't really have anything to say to one another. And they don't really have a real conversation the entire time. After yeah. the mother dies, they kind of lament, oh, we didn't really do anything. We should have done more. But then they leave the father immediately. It's really, so, yeah. so the chit-chat kind of extends to their actions also. Noriko, who's the uh, daughter-in-law, yeah, is the, the only the one, one who has yeah. a real conversation with the father. She sits down and they talk about life. They talk about their emotions. And he's the one who gives her the 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 watch. The watch. The most the only gift I have to give really is she's time. the only one who talked to the mother too. Yes. She had that meaningful conversation. So Yeah, and I don't think that Ozu wants us to think that she's the good one. It's just that she's the only one without a family, for one. Mm-hmm that her connection to them is kind of her only connection left to her husband who died in the war or went missing in the war. Um, So it's kind of a trauma thing too. She connects Mm -hmm. so much with the father at the end because he just lost her wife, his, his wife. So there's trauma bonding going on there. It's not, it's not entirely selfless. Yeah. Yeah. And that's partly why this movie doesn't go into sentimentality like it could Mm -hmm. Um, because you don't see Noriko or Noriko, however you pronounce her name, she's not this perfect angel. She kind of says, but I'm also selfish. You know, I don't think about my dead husband all the time. And, you know, she, she's kind of deflecting their praise and you kind of, there's, there's, you kind of get the sense that she's a little more complicated than, than we thought before. She's almost like being their servant, just helping them out. The, the, the two, the father and the mother. Um, but it's, uh, Anyway, the, the whole thing is, it's very objective. Um, there's not any, you know, wrenching of your emotions to try to make this happen. But there's also this great moment at the end where the father says, if I would have known that she was dying, <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. have been nicer to her. <laughs> like, that's such an honest and terrible and common sentiment. I and think. he did know that she was dying. He's dying. They're both old. They're both, They're both, both going to die. Like, when are you ever going to start being nice if it's not when you're 80, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what's great about that Noriko character too is the way that you see her at least the way that I saw her changes naturally over the movie at first yeah. I'm thinking is this just kind of a bad actress because she has this big smile on her face yep. with every line that she's delivering every single one no matter yeah. how small talky it is and well, then at the end after you see her her grief you see her kind of just struggling to stay chipper 
the smile kind of feels desperate after a while and you yeah. realize that's a choice that's a, that's an actor's choice that's not just um you know i'm i'm trying to be pretty in the scene or something it's also kind of harder to appreciate because it's in english you know the subtitles yeah, yeah. i never really know if the delivery of of the lines is exactly how it would have been delivered in english and a lot of the acting feels kind of like it, it, i think one of the imdb um user critics <laughs> said that it's felt wooden and i think that's totally true like based on like my own you know, American point of view, watching, going to a movie. Um, it's like all the actors are just very like, you know, staid and proper and it's of its time. There's no emotion going on. It's of its time. It also could be a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, but again, by, by the end, you forget all about those preconceptions. At least I did. So we both liked it, yeah. but we also talked about the slowness. Let me, let me bring up revered, Rotten Tomatoes audience critic, <laughs> Tim D. Oh, yeah, um, Tim D. I follow him. <laughs> he wrote this as his review. Boring. You only have to, you, <laughs> you have to be in a film school frame of mind to like this. Do you think that's valid? Yeah, I mean, again, what I have, if, if this were just like flipping through an HBO Max, it's not anywhere else, just on HBO Max. If HBO Max said, recommended for you, and I started watching it, not knowing anything about Sight and Sound Pole. Mm -hmm. And I just watched the first five minutes. I probably would have stopped it and got, watched something else. Just because it's, it's, it is so like alien to my expectation of what it should be like. Um, but again, if you just look at the visuals, it delivers from the beginning to the end. You know, all these indoor scenes, which is kind of interesting that they, by the way... Um, they were all shot in a studio. They really look mm. like legit apartments. They like, look sweaty. Kind of yes. They're always <clears throat> fanning themselves mm -hmm. and everything. Actually, I was thinking I should get a fan like that because probably pretty effective. Low energy. <laughs> don't use the air conditioning anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think anyone would mind in my house. You save a lot of money. Yeah, just more fans. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's always these like it's like kind of like a narrow hallway kind of look, um, but there's so much detail in the set. Like it really looks, um, and just so many little objects and, and, um, how it's all set up. So I, I thought that was really engaging to, to, to look at. I think it's fascinating that it was actually all shot on a, in a studio, um, because somebody designed this very, you know, working class style apartment sets, like three or four of them and made them all look really engaging and interesting. Um, so what did you make of the, 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 the filming choices? You know, we have this, um, you know, the low shots all the time, the stationary cameras. Um, what, what, what did you make of it? What, what did, what did the, the filmmaking kind of add to the movie for you? I think it comes back to that objectivity idea where sometimes in movies, um, they will try to influence the way that we see certain characters by the way that that character is shot or the way that other characters respond to that character. Mm -hmm. They say something dumb. We get a reaction shot from somebody kind of snarling and we're like, yeah, that was kind of a dumb thing to say. <laughs> it's very true. And that's sort of it's how... It's manipulative, but it's how you, you tell stories too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's the way that, that directors, it's a shorthand, you know, can quickly get us on somebody's side or, or off of somebody else's. In this movie, because we do have long shots 
we have that objective point of view where we're just kind of watching a room. A lot of these scenes could be on a stage, you know, where we're just watching yeah. actors move about the stage. The camera stays where it is. Um, we don't have those shortcuts that kind of tell us the kids are being selfish here. Instead, we have to interpret, well, are they being selfish here or do they just have lives of their own and kids of their own and jobs? And this is a little bit of a burden. I, that That's how I got it. That's yeah. how I how I interpreted it. I do think that there's also, I read this in one of the reviews of it, that it's it, it may also be sort of a holdover from, you know, earlier forms of filmmaking where the camera was less, you know. Mobile. Yeah, yeah exactly. For sure. You really can't do a lot of it. Um, and also, um, I mean, the first movies were basically like reproductions of what you would see on the stage because that's the, that was just the first step of it. And now it's, you know, totally different. Now you have the pinnacle, you know, hardcore Henry, you know, GoPro, <laughs> GoPro movie, um, which I bet Ozu would have really appreciated. If I think so. Seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, another rule that the Ozu breaks in his shooting is the 180 degree rule where like in a conversation, the camera's supposed to stay on your left side and my right side so that you always see the, the conversation from one side. If you see a movie, now that I've said this rule, if you're listening, you, you pay attention, you'll see that the camera is always staying on, on one side of the conversation. If that makes sense. Um, and in this movie, you see a lot of conversations that are straight on. Yeah. Like yeah. it's kind of unnerving because I'm so used to seeing it the other way around. Mm -hmm. But he, that rule wasn't new to him. Like he knew that he was breaking that rule, according to this one critic. And um, I thought that was kind of interesting too. I guess it kind of felt sort of, it made it feel sort of simpler, innocent maybe, but also just, you know, they're looking directly into your eyes a lot of times, which doesn't really happen in a lot of conversations in movies that we see, mm -hmm. you know, now. So I thought that was kind of interesting. There's just so many things that felt unusual, unexpected. And it makes you study their reactions a little more, mm -hmm. like like Noriko with the smiling. If if those head-on shots weren't happening here so much, would I have noticed that, you know, straight yeah, from the no. beginning? But because she's smiling right at the camera, big wide grins, um, you kind of take note. And you do of the parents also where, you know, the... The kids are saying, oh, sorry about, about this, but we have to, you know, send you to this resort. We have to do this. We have to cancel these plans. And the parents say, oh, no, it's, it's no big deal. We don't want to be a bother. And I'm really trying to read their faces. Like, are they just trying to pretend like they don't care, but they actually do care? Are they hurt? And it's hard to read their reactions sometimes. Yeah. But I was trying to figure that out with all those shots. I think part of it is also like we were talking about culturally. And I'm going to, there, there's a... There's an author, David Desser, who wrote a whole book about this movie wow. um, in 1997. He said the movie takes place in 1953, so it's post-war Japan. Yeah, um, which it's, is important. It's brought up to us because, you know, Noriko's husband is dead mm -hmm. and their son. Um, it's after a few years, it's after, a few years after the Civil Code of 1948, which was supposed to stimulate the growth and to embrace Western ideals, capitalism and things. Um so it, it, I, I guess it sort of made me think like culturally, um, you know, it's right after World War II. Um, and I kind of wondered because of the, like, 
is it really, it, it's very proper, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All their interactions with each other is very proper and it makes you feel like there's less emotion to it. But you know that they're people, they're still people. They're having these emotions underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, so that takes a little bit of imagination and kind of patience to see how those emotions play out. The post-war thing only hammers home the generational divide, though, also. Very true, yeah. Because you have one generation who sort of survived the war and one generation that came after it. And I, th- I thought it was interesting how they wear traditional kimonos, Japanese dress, inside the house. But when they're out in the world, they wear and suits yep. and Western clothes. Black skirt, white shirt and at work. Yeah, yeah and I, so I think that that more hammers home the idea that this is a movie about time and about being stuck in this kind of transitional period and having unresolved feelings about that. You know, where do we land? It it, it all goes back to the drunken conversation with the dad and his two friends Mm -hmm. who are all lamenting their kids and saying they're disappointed. Are they really disappointed in their kids or are they just disappointed in the fact that the world is changing and kind of the world that they grew up in, the world that they knew, their place in it is becoming obsolete. And that happens to all of us when we get older. People have been saying kids these days since Adam and Eve, probably. (laughs) Um, So uh, in the Village Voice, Eric Hines said, time itself is Ozu's most potent weapon. Mm. Protracted sequences make you impatient for forward movement, but then in an instant you're left to mourn beauties hastened away. But that was a good explanation of it. And... Again, it's something that I'm not, you probably have to watch it to really, really appreciate it. Again, the, the plot doesn't sound too exciting. Um, the loneliness of the father at the end, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's very affecting. And you don't get into a movie for the plot anyway, right? If we talk about no, I Before do. Sunrise. I do a lot of times. It's these two people who walk <laughs> around and talk for... That's also a very unusual movie, though. But there are a lot it's of movies memorable. like this where people just... Talk. I think just things happen. I think if you have a movie like that, then there needs to be some other compensation, like the look of it or an emotional payoff has to still happen. Um, I think there's definitely some movement happening emotionally and before before sunset. I mean, the it has to happen emotionally. I mean, otherwise, I mean, even in Jean, no, are even you in, about before sunset or before sunrise? I guess either one. <laughs> All three of them. Even in Jean Dielman. There are things happening emotionally underneath the surface and it all, you know, the interpretations can be made and they're there. Um, But we don't need a a complicated plot to feel um, engaged by by a story or by characters. I recently watched Reservoir Dogs again Mm -hmm. recently and it's been a really long time since I'd seen that movie. And really, that's just guys talking, you know, nothing actually yeah, it was definitely a palate cleanser after <laughs> after Dealman. But not a whole lot happens because it kind of takes place before and after the sort of big thing, the, the bank heist. And we never see the bank heist. Mm-hmm. So really, you just have characters talking about something that you never saw yourself, but that's enough. So I think that if, if, if dialogue and if character, uh, if they're interesting enough, then plot is overrated. <laughs> um. Yeah, so uh, Ebert, going back to Ebert, he said that the movie lacks sentimental triggers and contrived emotion. It looks away from moments a lesser movie would have exploited. It doesn't want to force our emotions, but to share its understanding. I think that also works, works is right on. Um, the one piece of trivia that I had, by the way, is that um, 
Chishu Ryu, the who plays the father, he was in 52 of Ozu's 54 movies. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Talk about having uh, favorite actors. He wasn't always the lead in them, but he appeared in 52 out of 54. Mm. Wow. All right, so if we're going to rank them... Yep. <laughs> no, we're not going to rank them. We've only watched two. <laughs> we'll only watch two. But we will rank them after the five. Um, yeah, good. So what, what's next week? Eight and a half? Eight next week is eight and a half, which is Fellini. Um, I, I did start my first of probably seven or eight episodes, uh, you know, breaking up this movie. Um, episodes. First five minutes, stupendous. So I'll recommend it just on that. You should do the first like five, five minutes, minute reviews yeah, yeah. on Twitter. Five stars, one star, three stars, <laughs> two stars. Uh, I'll give the uh, first hour of this movie like a one and a half. And then the second half has to have about a, a nine stars to kind of even out, you know, mm. maybe have to, to give it a chance to bring it up. The system gets complicated after a while. <laughs> But eight and a half came out in 1963. Then we're going to move to Persona in 66 and then in the mood for love in 2000. So again, you can go check out the uh, HBO Max playlist to see all those. Until then, find us on social media or wherever you listen. And for all the golden takes, head over to letterbox.com slash Mike Cavalieri. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash best picture this. Thanks to WNZF and the illustrious Mark Gilliland for producing. Also, please remember to rate, review, subscribe. And thanks for listening to Best Picture This, because if it's a boring podcast, it must be a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah.